0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George, and our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 58 The Fatimid Caliphate. Before we get back into the main narrative of the Greeks, we're going to do a quick origin story episode on the Fatimid Caliphate. At first we didn't think they needed their own episode, but after a bit of research it became apparent that the Fatimid Caliphate has a unique role, but they also contribute to the events leading up to the most significant conflict in medieval history. A war that not only crashes into the Byzantine Empire, but rattles the geopolitics of the entire world. We're talking about the Crusades. And the Fatimid Caliphate has an important role to play in the events leading up to them. Quick search results on the Fatimid Caliphate explain how they were a Shia sect of Islam that drew its legacy back to Muhammad through the Prophet's daughter Fatima. And the Fatimids were also Ismaili Muslims. After searching what is Ismaili philosophy we found a quote saying, The objective of a smiley thought is to create a bridge between Hellenic philosophy and religion. This is the quote that made us realize the Fatimid Caliphate deserves its own origin story. But before we jump right into the Fatimids, we have to refresh you on the structure of the Caliphate. We talked about the Caliphate structure in the first season, and how Abu Bakr succeeded Muhammad as the first leader to follow the Prophet. The next four caliphs were all chosen by shura, a process of community consultation that some consider being an early form of Islamic democracy. This was called the Rashidun Caliphate, but a divergence soon came with Shia Muslims believing the Prophet's family should hold spiritual and political authority over the Caliphate, while the Sunni believed the Prophet's teachings and actions were most important, not the bloodline. It's important to note that both branches agree on the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, and their disagreement comes from who should hold authority over the Caliphate. The Umayyad Caliphate
1: ruled the new Arab Empire and treated their dynasty almost like their own royal bloodline. This was the dynasty of Muawiyah, who expanded the Caliphate and brought the Byzantine Empire to its knees. But a Shia movement saw the Umayyads overthrown and a new Abbasid Caliphate take over. The Abbasids were known as a more tolerant government that garnered support from the non-Arab Muslims, And it is during the Abbasid Caliphate that we first start hearing about the Fatimids. There are many other sub-branches within Shia Islam as well, but for the purpose of making sure this is only a single episode long, we will only concern ourselves with one of those branches. A man named Ishmael, whose lineage to the Prophet Muhammad draws from the daughter Fatima went around preaching Islam, claiming spiritual authority and announcing a new interpretation to the Prophet's message. As he passed his teaching and authority down to new imams, teachers, they caught the attention of the Abbasid Caliphate and had to go into hiding. They found a city on the edge of the Syrian desert, basically in the middle of nowhere, yet still central to the entire Caliphate. And here they set up his base of operations. This Ismaili Imam sent preachers out into the cities to spread the new creed. These preachers made it as far as India and Bahrain. The Ismaili Imam caught the attention of the Abbasids and were once again forced to leave their home. They traveled from the small town on the edge of the Syrian desert and
0: made their way through Palestine to Egypt. In 902 CE, the 11th Imam of Ismail was forced to flee Egypt to escape the Abbasid authorities that hunted him down. If you remember from season 1, the Abbasids overthrew the Umayyads by slowly preaching and infiltrating the small towns and outposts of the Caliphate. And when they finally accumulated enough followers, they struck the Caliphate army at the center and toppled the dynasty. Well, the Abbasids were not going to let someone else use their move against them, so they spent time and effort hunting down these men. Luckily for the Ismaili Imam, the network of preachers across the empire were able to hide him and feed him until he made it out of the grasp of the Abbasids and entered Tunisia, where the Abbasid authority ended. On the outskirts of North Africa, the Ismaili Imam recruited the local Berbers to his cause. The Berbers were a North African tribe that helped the Umayyad dynasty conquer all of North Africa and Spain. Even though the black Berbers did most of the fighting for the Umayyads, they were not treated as equals by their Arab overlords. While the preachers gathered supporters among the Berber tribes, the Ismaili Imam waited in North Africa, biding his time. All the while, he received communications from his preachers And when his followers were in great enough numbers, they took control of the province. The eleventh imam of the Ismailis was able to come out of hiding and take his place at the head of the new Fatimid Caliphate. At this time, the Fatimids only controlled Tunisia and Sicily. Now as it turns out, just because your followers say they have enough support to overthrow a province, doesn't mean they have everyone on board. Some of the Berber tribes were horrified that the imam, Abdullah al-Mahdi, was claiming to be the next caliph, and they immediately revolted. For the next couple of years, the Fatimids fought against the rebellion Berbers before finally securing their position of power. But what was so different about the Ismaili teachings that
1: would drive people to leave the Abbasids and follow Abdullah al-Mahdi? The words of the Imams were powerful enough to turn all of North Africa and Sicily against the Abbasids. The Shia message was simple. Human reason alone was not enough to interpret revelation. A divinely inspired person like Muhammad, someone whose deeds and words were guided spiritually and divinely from above, were needed to lead the rest of humanity, and this was passed down through the bloodline of Muhammad. If you think of this line of succession as noble lineage, after a few generations, you end up with many different people claiming the same authority through lineage. It's not like they passed the authority to the firstborn sons only. It was anyone who could trace their lineage back to Muhammad. So this naturally divided the claim through Shia Islam. As this lineage went down the line, there was a divergence of the Imam Jafar, who had two sons, Ishmael and Musa. We are following the line of Ishmael, but the line of Musa went on for several more generations with thousands of followers. But this line ended at the 12th Imam, named Muhammad al-Mahdi. When al-Mahdi went missing, many of his followers believed that his lineage went into the unknown realm and would later return at the end of times as the messiah. This branch of Shia Islam has grown to be known as the Twelvers, for it was the Twelfth Imam who went missing.
0: The other branch of Shia Islam is the line of Ismail, Ishmael, who leads us down to Abdullah al-Mahdi. When Abdullah al-Mahdi preached, he veered away from the teaching that the world was created in six days by God and instead the six days are referring to six prophets and the ages of mankind associated with them. Sunday was the Adamic cycle, led by the prophet Adam. Monday was the Noachide cycle, led by the prophet Noah. Tuesday was the Abrahamic cycle, led by the prophet Abraham. Wednesday was the Mosaic cycle, led by the prophet Moses. Thursday was the Christic cycle, led by the prophet Jesus. Friday was the Mohammedan cycle, led by the prophet Muhammad, and Saturday was the cycle of resurrection, the end of times. Every cycle started with a prophet, and each prophet was succeeded by a legacy of related prophets. Because Muhammad is the prophet of the sixth cycle, he is the last prophet before the end of times. But what this also means is that the Ismailis consider the Gospels as words of truth and wisdom, along with the words of the Torah. The differences between the words of the Avesta, the Torah, the Gospel, the Quran, are not differences in meaning at all, but are only different esoterically by the aspect of words. The Romans, the Persians, and the Indians are all in possession of the truth of God. The only reason for scriptures having differences is because human beings are diverse. Ismaili's look at the universe as being of two different realms, the spiritual realm and the physical realm. They also had a saying, as above, so below. Everything that happens in the spiritual world is tied to that of the physical world. They also believe that the imam was the most connected being in the physical realm to the spiritual realm and this theology meant that Jesus as a prophet was a divine reflection of that spiritual realm just as Muhammad was and Moses before them both. This is a powerful message one that would have resonated with both Muslims and Christians and possibly Zoroastrians as well. These Ismaili preachers weren't just reaching followers of Islam, they were reaching the Christians and Jews and Zoroastrians within the Caliphate. It was a unifying message of universal truth and tolerance. Meanwhile, the new Fatimid
1: Caliphate was situated right in the middle of the known world. With the Frankish Kingdom to the north, the Umayyad dynasty to the west, and the Byzantine Empire to the east, not to mention the Abbasid Caliphate still holding strong in Egypt. Whether they were spiritually appealing to the masses was irrelevant. Their presence alone jeopardized the authority of their neighbors, putting a target on their heads. But as a new player on the scene, they caught the attention of the Bulgarian Empire, who was trying to fight off the Byzantine. So in the 920 CE, the Bulgarian Empire reached out to the Fatimids and proposed a military alliance against the Byzantines. But nothing happened with this alliance at first. The Fatimids started expanding their territory in North Africa and butted right up against the Abbasids in Egypt. On several occasions they tried to conquer the lands of Egypt but were promptly repelled. On April 3, 934 CE, Abdullah al-Mahdi died and was replaced by his son al-Qa'im, the second caliph of the Fatimid dynasty. Al-Qa'im started his reign by sending his navy north, into northern Italy, sacking the city of Genoa. Even though his reign started off well, a Berber tribe used this moment to rebel and cause a civil war in the homeland of the caliphate. The rebellion grew so strong that a Berber armour made it to the gates of the capital and almost broke through. For a brief moment, it seemed like the Fatimid Caliphate was going to collapse as quickly as it rose. The Berber army had the capital surrounded on all sides. There was no getting in or going out of the capital city. The only thing that allowed the Caliphate to survive this tumultuous period was the navy which brought in food and supplies from Sicily. The siege lasted longer than the 12th Imam, for on May 17, 946, the Caliph died. He was succeeded by his son, Ishmail al-Mansur. Ishmail al-Mansur was able to rally his men and fight back against the Berbers, ultimately crushing the rebellion and taking control of North Africa. He came out of the conflict stronger than ever, and by 948 was the ultimate power in North Africa. Although Ishmael al-Mansur was a great caliph, his ultimate achievement was no more than solidifying the land his father bestowed upon him. His reign was short-lived, and he died of a terrible illness in 953.
0: Al-Muiz The son of Ishmael al-Mansur became the fourth caliph of the Fatimid Empire. Al-Muiz didn't inherit a peaceful empire. He just inherited the same restless, troublesome Berbers who, for some reason, kept rebelling against their occupying overlords. In order to deal with this trouble at home, once and for all, Al-Muiz called upon a man named Jahar to help him in his fight against the Berbers. Jahar is a very fascinating man in history, for he is the son of a slave. His father was captured from the coast of modern-day Croatia and is said to have been of Greek or Slavic origins. Jahar's father was a good slave and either worked for his freedom or worked just hard enough that his son was born out of slavery. This freed Roman man, now converted to Islam, was a follower and believer of the Ismaili imam and would prove to be his greatest general. Jahar went west and defended the Fatimid Caliphate against the Umayyads in Spain and reached the Atlantic Ocean, locking the Umayyads in the Iberian Peninsula, blocking them off from the rest of the world. Although Jahar made his name in the west, securing North Africa and defending against the Umayyads in Spain, what would ultimately go down as his most historic achievements would come from his campaigns in the east. In 965 CE, the Byzantine Empire sent a naval force to the island of Sicily with the intention of driving the Fatimids from the island. The Greeks landed a force near the Straits of Messina, the narrowest gap between Sicily and mainland Italy. The Byzantines tried to move inland and take several cities, but the Fatimid forces fought them right back to their boats. As the Greeks tried to escape Sicily through the narrow straits, the Fatimid navy intercepted them and engaged in what is called the Battle of the Straits. Like most medieval naval vessels, these ships were forced to get into close contact so they could physically ram into each other and either board the enemy ship or hit them so hard they broke apart and sunk. It is here that the Fatimid warriors were said to have dived overboard from their ships, swimming across the waves to the Byzantine vessels, smashing ceramic jars of Greek fire under the stern and rudders of the ships. And then when they were lit on fire, the ships burnt and sunk into the sea. This resulted in an overwhelming victory for the Fatimids, and saw the Greeks kicked out of Sicily forever. We don't know if that really happened, but it is quite the story.
1: In the 960s CE, the Abbasids in Egypt were going through their own internal troubles. The River Nile was not flooding as high as normal, creating a shortage of crops and further inflaming unrest in the region. This made the Egyptian Abbasids rather weak, and the Fatimids on their borders seized the moment of weakness and invaded. The Fatimids' army, led by the Ismaili Byzantine general Jahar, invaded with a force so strong and so battle-hardened that they annihilated the Abbasids. In 969, the Fatimids swept through Egypt and conquered the last bastion of Abbasids in North Africa. The Fatimids now controlled the entire breadbasket of the old Roman Empire. One reason the fighting was so easy is that the Imam al-Muiz sent word to the people of Egypt that they would be spared any violence and welcomed into the caliphate with open arms if they did not fight back. With such a generous offer, the people in Egypt opened their arms and accepted the authority of the new Fatimid regime. Jahar spent the next four years in Egypt as a viceroy to the Caliph and opened up the region for safe pilgrimage for all Muslims to the Holy Land of Mecca and Medina, including that of Sunni Muslims. While in Egypt, Jahar constructed a new capital city. This city would be the intellectual and spiritual capital of the Fatimid Caliphate and still stands today as the city of Cairo. Jahar even constructed a university in Cairo that still stands today. The capital of the Fatimid Caliphate was ultimately moved from Tunisia to Egypt, where they could focus their attention on the true target, Mecca and Medina. One of the reasons the Fatimids were so successful is their network of preachers who were already the lands they wanted to conquer, spreading the word of Ismaili to the common people. Before they ever invaded a new territory, they made sure that they had enough support among the locals to hold on to the land without revolt. These preachers were everywhere, sent to all corners of the land, and because they spoke a message of universal truth, it wasn't hard
0: to get the populace on their side. Once Egypt became the capital of the caliphate, immediate work was put into strengthening the economy. The currency was stabilized and an advisor from Babylon was brought in to oversee the changes. A Jewish man from Iraq who converted to Islam later in life was put in charge of this transition. Through his work, the city became one of the most economically stable governments in the region. The fact that a Jew was able to rise to such levels within the caliphate shows just how tolerant the Fatimids were to men of different faith. This acceptance of religious and ethnic outsiders was very important after moving the capital to Egypt, considering the region was home to a large Coptic Christian population. This form of open diversity was transferred to the Fatimid military, which would play a key role in the next century. When the Fatimids tried to push their armies north into Syria, they were defeated on numerous occasions which made the Caliph realize that his North African army was not equipped for the terrain in Syria and Anatolia. He needed to diversify his military if he was going to expand north into the Abbasid Caliphate and Byzantine Empire. It's at the same time that the Greek army under Emperor John Simaschise came into several clashes in southern Syria. The Fatimids recruited many Turkish slaves into their army to help them in their conquests of the Levant. And this new adoption of Turkish soldiers conflicted with the current status of the Berbers as the foot soldiers of the Caliphate. This dispute amongst the Turks and Berbers of the Caliphate would eventually result in turmoil. Ultimately, the dispute between the soldiers of the West, the Berbers, and the soldiers of the east, the Turks, would result in the death of the Fatimid Caliphate. But for the time being, it just meant short-term gains in Syria. In 971 CE, the Fatimids seized territory in southern Syria that put them in direct contact with the Roman army. This was the first time the Fatimids had seen battle with the Greek soldiers since the Battle of the Straits in Sicily. Here the battle-hardened army of the Fatimids met the battle-hardened army of the Romans, and as the two great powers came head-to-head, a showdown seemed imminent. Except there was trouble brewing on the southern border of the new Caliphate. Something turned their attention away from the Byzantine Empire, and back to Mecca and Medina. Trouble was brewing in the south. We mentioned earlier that the Ismaili
1: broke off from the rest of Shia Islam. It all started when Imam Jafar al-Sadiq designated his firstborn to be the spiritual inheritor of the Imamate. Ismail was the oldest son and spiritual leader for the Shia. His popularity among his followers was great. Unfortunately, he died prematurely, as his father was still alive and the living imam. With the proverbial prince dying before the proverbial king, there was a succession problem. Jafar al-Sadiq had no other choice but to pass the imamate on to his next eldest son, Musa. If this was as simple as a king passing the crown on to his next living son, the problem would have stopped here. But this was beyond princes and kings. The imamate was more than a crown. This was a holy, spiritual position that connected the imam spiritually to God. How could it just be given to the next son? Well, for most people it was simple. Ismail was dead and Na Musa was the next imam. But for the minority, the most hardcore, dedicated followers of Ismail, they could not believe he was dead. Rumors spread around that Ismail went into hiding for fear of assassination from the Abbasid rulers. Many believed he would one day return as Ahmadi at the end of times and rid the world of evil and injustice. And that is exactly what happened. At least, that is what everyone thought at first. While the Fatimid Caliphate grew in North Africa, dedicated followers of Ismail moved to Syria and Iraq and Iran and began spreading the message that the Mahdi was going to return soon and they better prepare the world. They built armies of dedicated Shia Muslim warriors, who would be ready to obey the Mahdi's commands as soon as he arrived on earth. This new band of Shia called themselves Karmatians, after the leader Hamdan Karmat, although this is being contested.
0: The Karmatians seized the city of Bahrain from the Abbasids and founded their new capital city. They spread fast and furiously through the Levant, marching as far as Baghdad. It seemed the Abbasid Caliphate was completely humiliated, having both the Fatimids and the Karmatians rip their empire to pieces. You'd think the Fatimids and the Karmatians would want to work together and conquer the infidels in Byzantium in Europe. But instead, the Karmatians had something else in mind. They decided to begin what modern scholars have referred to as a century of terror the Karmatians seized syria iraq southern iran eastern arabia and even parts of yemen they were the largest muslim state on the planet at the time with the fatimid caliphate right behind them at this point you have the umayyads in spain fatimids in north africa egypt and sicily Karmatians in Syria and southern Iraq and East Arabia, and the Abbasids with just the central Middle East. The Caliphate at this point had fractured as much as the Western Roman Empire in 476. The most single horrific moment of the Karmatian rule came in 930 CE when the leader Abu Tahir al Janabi. A Persian warrior marched his army across the Arabian deserts into the city of Mecca. There they found the gates barred, and no one was allowed to enter the city. This was the holiest site in Islam, and yet they were not permitted to enter. Abu Tahir al Janabi proclaimed this as an insult, for all Muslims should be permitted to pilgrimage to the holy site. Even today, the Kaaba is the holiest site in Islam. Now for those who are not familiar, this is the holy shrine in Mecca that holds the black stone that was placed in the shrine by Abraham's son, dedicated to Adam and Eve. This is the holiest of holies. The little black stone in the side of the temple is thought by many to be a meteorite, a stone that literally fell from heaven. Well, the leader of the Karmatians, Abu Tahir al Janabi, must have been very convincing, because the guards opened the gates and let the Islamic soldiers into Mecca. Now, according to ancient customs, there should not be a problem, as every single Muslim had respected the site in the past. Therefore, every single Muslim in the future should respect the holy site. And this is exactly what did not happen.
1: Abu Tahir al-Janabi gave the order to his men to attack, and the Cormacian warriors pulled out their swords and began slaughtering every Muslim pilgrim within the holy site. They killed the caretakers and the guards and every innocent civilian in the area. They dragged out all their bodies to the center and cast them into the holy well, desecrating the site with bodies of the innocent. It was a nightmare. There is nothing in modern-day times to compare this to. Imagine if ISIS marched into Mecca and massacred every Muslim tourist visiting the holy site today. There would be an absolute uproar. To make matters even worse, they ripped the Kaaba out from the shrine and carried it away into the desert. It is estimated that 20,000 pilgrims were killed in the Holy Land. For the next 20 years, the Kaaba was hidden in the deserts of Arabia, where it is said to have been defiled and smashed into pieces. The Cormacian downfall started almost immediately. But the defining moment, the exact point you can point to and say, right there, that is the beginning of the end, is in the year 931, when the Mahdi returned. The leader of the Cormacians in Syria, was waiting for the arrival of the Mahdi. The entire Cormatian people were waiting for the return of the Mahdi. They didn't know exactly what he was going to look like, but they knew there were signs and hints. And when a young Persian man came up to the leader of the Cormatians and proclaimed himself to be the Mahdi, the true Mahdi, sent from heaven to rid the world of evil and justice and bring about the end of times, the formation leader did the only reasonable thing. He gave absolute power of his army and government over to the young Persian man.
0: The new Persian Mahdi took absolute power and immediately started to shake things up. He threw most of the teachings of Hamdan Karmat right out of the window. In fact, he threw out most of the Ismaili teachings He started speaking a lot of anti-Arab stuff that had a lot of people confused. And then the new Mahdi reinstated the worship of fire and spoke of Zoroaster in ways that had been forgotten and must be brought back. The Karmatians were horrified. Somehow they had been tricked by a Persian Zoroastrian sympathizer. It got further out of control when his followers were arrested by the Abbasids and the Mahdi himself was taken into custody. Eventually, the fake Mahdi was executed and this nonsense was put to rest. But the greater question remained. How the hell could the leader of the Karmatians have been so blind as to think a Zoroastrian was a reincarnation of the Prophet? The very question of the Karmatian legitimacy was called into question. And many of the followers abandoned the practice right there, done. But there were many hardcore followers who stayed behind. They were okay with branding the fake Mahdi as an accident. In 951, the Kaaba was returned to Mecca. Although it is said to have been cracked... The circumstances in which it was returned are also mysterious, as it was left in a mosque in Baghdad after a large ransom was paid by the Abbasids. It was accompanied by a note that read, By command we took the stone, and by command we returned the stone. In 972 CE, the remaining forces of the Karmatians attacked the capital of the Fatimids in Cairo. The fighting went on for several years before the Fatimids were finally able to destroy the Karmatians and secure the southern border. With the Karmatians secure, the Fatimids were able to turn their attention to the north. But by now, Emperor John Simiskes was dead and a new emperor was donning the purple. This is, of course, Basil II, the son of Constantine, and the longest reigning Roman emperor of all time. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.